we made in previous weeks that we had studied. First of all, we raised the question, why should we study Tanakh? Why should we study the 24 books of the Bible? And raising the question, of course, everybody here gave the standard answers that this is the Torah Hashem, which of course is true, this is our history, this is what we need to establish us as a people. All that, of course, is correct, all that is true. And yet, I proposed something a little bit different. I had said, okay, let's see, okay, whatever that is, that's good. Good, good. Smells good. Okay, good, great. So we, we raised this question as to why study the books of Tanakh and my answer to this was a bit different than everybody else's answer to this. My, different, my answer to this was we Jews have a mission, we Jews have a plan, we Jews have a responsibility. It's called to the word tikkun olam to mend the world. Mend the world. I had quoted for you the last pasuk of Malachi. Malachi is the last prophet who spoke to the Jewish people. The last prophet, Malachi, who prophesied 450 before the common era. So I asked you the question, what are the last words that God officially says to us? The answer is, bring Mashiach. Have a period of redemption. Tikkun Olam. So our mission is to change the world. How are we going to change the world? In the books that are in front of you, which is called Tanakh, which is called the Bible, <coughs> these books, 24 books of the Bible, contain the ideas, ideals, and values that we all need in order to change the world. Our mission is based on the notion that, it's okay, Torah is an educational system by which we are going to change the world. We believe that the word is more profound, the word is more powerful than the sword. Islam, Christianity, of course, want to change the world in their fashion with the sword. And of course, it succeeded to extraordinary degrees. We are saying that by the word, by the idea, by the thought, by the concept, we are going to change the world. The word has the power to affect change. Of course, one has to be an effective spokesman in order to change the, word, the world with the word. A very effective spokesman. When I teach this in high school, I raise the question to the kids and I say to them, how powerful is your word? Most of them are unaware of the power of the word. And I say, imagine the following scenario. Let's say vitamin none, God forbid. Let's say somebody that you love very much, your sibling or some, somebody, is about to intermarry. Now what are you going to do? How are you going to stop them? It's only the word that's going to stop them. If you are smart enough, if you have the power of the spoken word, if you're a great spokesman, you understand what rhetoric is all about, if you're able to do this, then you could stop that person. But if you don't have a powerful argument, if you're not sophisticated, or almost, in quotes, cunning enough to be able to change that person's mind, you're going to fail, and their life's going to be ruined. So we are asserting that we as Jews have a very powerful message over here. This book contains the ideas, ideals, and values of the Jewish people. And with this, we are going to effectively impact and change the world. I gave you an example. is an example of the word changing the world. What's in that particular pasuk? In one of the few examples, we see that God has a soliloquy. God speaks to himself. And says in that soliloquy, Shall I hide people that's what I'm doing? But Abraham will be a great nation. Abraham is going to be an impactful personality. 
as you well know, there are people in the world that are impactful personalities. People that so-called, the straw that mixes the drink. There are people that grow up there and make massive changes. Alexander the Great comes to mind. Here's one man who conquered the civilized world at that point, directly before the common era. And it's one man who's able to affect a massive change in the world itself. Abraham was one such personality. 4,000 years ago, 800 before the common era. Now, what is Abraham's idea or thought or concept? God says in this Pasuk, 1819 in Bereshit. I think it's 1819, right? It's 1817. 1817. 1817. Well, you'll see what I'm getting to. Okay? I know this man, Abraham. He shall command his children and the people around him. They safeguard the path of God. What's the pathway of God? This is the key variable in all of Jewish religion. What is the pathway of God? justice and righteousness without these two values we are nothing with these two values we shall impact and change the world justice and righteousness now <clears throat> we then raise the question whether or not we are in fact changing the world if that's been our mandate 4,000 years ago then are we in fact succeeding so of course we made the point very quickly to review that Judaism has two daughter religions, two religions that absorbed our values, perverted them to be sure, then they got, didn't get the message so clear to be sure, but at least they have the primary message. And what is that? You have Christianity, which came about 2,000 years after Abraham, or 800 after Abraham, which today is 1.8 billion people in the world, 1.8 billion Christians in the world, and they've absorbed our message, and then 600 years later you have, you have Islam, which is 1.2 billion people which makes 3 billion people out of 6 billion people which means we have impacted upon half of the world no choice I bring my own choice you got choice oh okay good here you have your 1.8 billion Christians 1.2 billion Muslims right which equals 3 billion out of 6 billion people 50% of the world we have impacted which is an extraordinary number we are doing an extraordinarily great job. In only 4,000 years, we made this amazing impact upon the world. And take note of the percentage of change which you mentioned. When Abraham started, he was one out of 10 million people in the world. So he was one ten millionth of the pie with this idea. Now we have 50% of the world's pie has been impacted. That rate of change is impossible to con my PhD mathematics teachers in Hillel could not get that rate of change. You want to get a calculator? Figure it out yourself. I'm starting to know what it is. We'll go from 1 over 10 million. From 1 10 million to 50% is an extraordinary rate of change in only 4,000 years, and that's the power of the word. We've done it. Of course, there's still 50% of the pie left to teach. So in this book are all the ideas, ideals, and values in order to tikkun olam, to change the world, to mend the world, to bring about a Mashiach. Good. Then we raise the question, how in fact do we change the world? Or better, what are some of our values that have in fact been adopted by the modern world? Well, we have this mitzvah called Shemitah Yovel. 
Now, if we had the time, I would ask you to find a contemporary analog to Shemitah Ve'yovel. Shemitah means I allow my land to lie fallow every single seventh year. There are seven year cycles. So every seventh year, I don't touch the land. What happens to that land? Well, number one, it lies fallow. Good. All debts owed to me are canceled. If you buy borrowed money from Eli Haddad, he's generous, he gives me money all the time. What happens? By the seventh year, I'm such a smart guy, what do I do with those debts? They're canceled. That's a brilliant on my part. I borrow, I borrow, I borrow, so they're all canceled. Correct? Now, what is that called in American legal lore? L-O-R-E. Chapter 11 or back to whatever you call it. Now, why is that, why is that right? Why is that fair in America? Why did America establish a system such that I could declare chapter 11, Charlie, why can I declare chapter 11 in American lore? Why? Okay. Why? Because it's right. Why is it right? Because you as a businessman have a right to not do well, and if you don't do well, you can declare something that's called chapter 11 of bankruptcy, and I can start all over again, and all those debts that I owed you, you're not happy about it, but American law says, I'm a human being. I've tried my hardest. Uh, this is a legal chapter 11. Sometimes I understand it's not. Is that correct? It's, uh, yeah, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about legal chapter 11s. Kosher ones. So in that case, what is that really based on? What pasuk in the Torah is that notion based on? Okay, Shemitah is the same thing. Exactly. Cancellation of deaths. But what is that pasuk based on? Very simple. Bereshit Aleph, Perek Aleph, Pasuk Kav Vav and Kav God has created the human being in His image, which means a dignified human being. If He's dignified, means He has a right to food, He has a right to means an employment, and He has a right even to fail. If I failed in business, and I owe you money, but I tried very hard, I have a right to fail, and therefore Shemitah, and American law says what? Declare chapter 11, and you can start all over again. Extraordinary system. Food stamps, the welfare system, is all the laws of Shemitah put into practice. All based on this notion that the human being is a dignified human being. The greatest and most important and most impactful teaching that we have given the world is the idea of Selim Elohim, which, as you know, I've taught this for 20 years. Selim Elohim, not my idea, it's what I said before me, and many of my teachers have celebrated this notion that the human being is created in the image of God, therefore he's intrinsically infinitely valuable not because you're wealthy not because you're good looking not because you're a great athlete not because you could dunk on your 6'2 no because you're intrinsically a human being therefore you're intrinsically valuable I tell this to every couple that I marry say so you look at the Sheva Berachot what's the first of the seven Sheva Berachot? no right? What are we saying over here? We're thanking God for creating each person. That is in the marriage ceremony. Want to teach you the values of how to deal with your spouse. That person standing opposite you is a Salem king. Therefore, you may not insult or spit at or curse or treat in any derogatory fashion. Because they are Salem king. In that famous t-shirt of the 60s, which I'm still looking for, I told you before, what is it again? T-shirt says, no, God don't make no exactly. I am a somebody because God don't make no junk. That's what it said. I'm so it's a great T-shirt because it's Salem and King. That's what it's all about. So now we have many, many, many contemporary analogs 
of how Jewish ideas have infiltrated into the modern temple. What is the most important idea in the modern world? The most important idea. Sorry? No. Progress. Progress. Very good. 19th century. The notion of progress, that society can change from point A to point B to point C to point D. That's a biblical idea. We are approaching, through our progress, a redeemed era called the Messianic Age, called Tikkun Olam. Pagan theology, pagan philosophy, as we said, is cyclical. Everything goes around and around and around, following the natural order. The natural order is cyclical, so too is human society, cyclical. If you're born a slave, you die a slave. That's supposed to be in the pagan worldview. Along comes Judaism and says, no, man is intrinsically the right to be free. In which book of the Bible do I, found, do I find the notion that man has a right to be free? The book of Shemot. Shemot says, you are a slave. You've been a slave for 200 years. It doesn't matter. God said, and Moses carried that, that you have a right to be free. The notion that you're born a slave and then you're to die a slave is a pagan idea, but not a Jewish idea. We broke that mold. And for the first time in human history, a slave people erupts, breaks its chains, declares itself free, and marches out of Egypt. 13th century before the common era. Extraordinary. So we find that idea as well. So there are multiple analogs in the contemporary world of biblical ideas. Now, I raised the question also last time, are we impacting, Joseph, good to see you, welcome, are we really impacting? So, this second class that we have at 9.30 really is a outgrowth of this question. And I discovered, not me, but it's obvious, but it's strange, that every 10 years or so, Somebody in the non-Jewish world writes a very, very wonderful complimentary book about the Jews. So I had seen that in the 1960s, Mishnah wrote the, the source, Extraordinary. In the 1970s, Ernest van der Haag wrote The Jewish Mystique, Extraordinary, on how Jews are smarter than everybody else, etc. 1980s, Paul Johnson wrote History of the Jews, and he writes in his first page, why am I a good Christian writing about the Jews? The Jews are a fossil religion. So I did my work in Christianity, I realized, really, you can't say Christianity unless you understand Judaism. And the Jews are not a fossil people. And some of the best literature on the modern state of Israel and the Holocaust is by non-Jew Paul Johnson. Best. Those two are the best chapters in his book and the best chapters in historical writing about the Jewish modern state, the Holocaust and the rise of the state of Israel. He's very loving of the Jews, as a matter of fact. And in the 1990s, James Kill writes the book called The Gift of the Jews, how a small nomadic tribe affected the way we all think and feel. It's amazing. Every 10 years for the last 40 or 50 years, this happened. We went, we went one step before that, and we discovered that even Mark Twain, in the famous letter of 1998, wrote wonderfully about the Jews. Everybody should read that essay to find out who you really are, or at least how Mark Twain, Sam Clemens, thought you were in 1898. He was way ahead of his time. So that second class that we have tries to show how we are impacting upon these authors. And why is that important? Because each of these books are bestsellers. Each of these books are read by tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. 
The source has 3 million copies in print 40 years after its publication. It's astounding. 40 years later. Who's going to remember this speech 40 years from now? Hopefully you all will. Good. Harvey's here. Okay. Good. Well, usually people forget these things. 40 years of people still reading the source. It's amazing. In print, in how many languages? 35 languages. 35 languages. This book has been translated to and 3 million people are reading it, or at least the little copies are in print. So we are impacting most definitely. Finally, last week we raised the question, how are we impacting? How do you really impact? I had three points, three models of impact. One was the linear model, right? Well, let's say it again. One was the vertical model. The vertical model are two people who have... high-tech it's called, really? <laughs> Perfect. where we have a model of two people who are perfect teachers in Judaism we praise the profession of teacher we praise it can't do anything better than being a Tamil Hacham and being a teacher of people and you have two perfect teachers two parents who are perfect teachers in my theoretical model my drawing has been proof this last week but I'm giving her a skirt this week skirts and a shaving Right? They have four kids. These are four children that all have perfect values. Remember, we spoke about the, the book called The School on the Hill of two retired teachers who raised their children, understanding that education does not happen nine to five when you want to teach. When does education happen? When the kid's mind is ready to be open. Obvious point in educational theory. So it might be at 2 a.m. or at 10 a.m. or at 8.30 in the morning or 4 o'clock in the morning. If you're there ready to teach, kids' windows open, and you teach, that's going to happen. So all of this, these kids all have the right values, the right ideas, based on this book called The School on the Hill, and they're going to have four children, and they're going to have four children, and we said that after about two, three hundred years, you end up with a million. A million people with the right values, right ideas. It's a theoretical model. It's not going to happen this way, for various obvious reasons. But those who here last week saw how we played itself out, then we as Jews are going to achieve a critical mass of people that's going to be able to impact even more widely on the world itself. Once you reach critical mass. Furthermore, we have, that's model number one. Two is concentric circles. We spoke about the impact of concentric circles. And three was what? Rack. What is rack? How random acts of kindness influences and impacts upon people. Two, two examples. One was the person who gave $20 million to Columbia University. Why? Because a random act of kindness. Some teacher at Columbia was nice to him, as he says, when I was serving food in the Columbia dining room. Just nice. So he gave $20 million more to improve the education of others. And a woman in Delaware who gave $6 million to Stern College of University. Why? Because she read an article of these women, Dubikud Holim. So their random act of kindness brought $6 million to impact more so. So random kindness could, in fact, impact and influence a tremendous number of others. So we all should look out for Bill Gates, when he has a flat tie on the road, fix his flat for him, and give you two or three or five or ten billion dollars, and then you could really impact upon the world. That's the goal. That's the idea. That's the ideal. Imagine if Bill Gates had this notion of impacting and fixing the world. He may. He really may. We have to do it in a way that's efficient, that makes sense, that's going to do it the right job, and that's how we're going to impact upon the world. So that's what we had covered up to this point. Then I gave out to you three different sheets that Ricky is now Xeroxing for us. 
in order to absorb and know these <coughs> values of the 24 books of the Bible, you should be aware of what, book, what the books are, as well you should be aware of the dates. You must understand that every idea that we're going to speak about is rooted in a historical context. If you don't know the historical context, then you cannot understand the idea. Obvious, clear. So we began on our first sheet, and hopefully Ricky will be here soon, so you can get to see what I'm doing. We began with the five books of Moses. We're going to come back and focus on the ideas in those chapters. Let's come back to that. Right now, I just want you to have an overview of the books of the Bible. So you have five books of Moses. We all know the five books of Moses. We read it every single year. We study it. We understand it. We know it. We'll see how much and how well you know it when we come to those books. Let's begin with the lesser known books of the Bible, the prophetic books with the book of Joshua. Joshua, Judges, and Samuel, and Kings. First division. It's called the Im Shonim or the Early Prophets. Now, what are the years that these books span? Well, Joshua's easy. Joshua takes over from Moshe Rabbeinu. If we say that, as most scholars say, that Exodus took place in 1240, before the common era, then Joshua takes over in 1240. Good. 1240 before the common era is Joshua. Good. Takes over from Moshe Rabbeinu. Is he right? No, no, no. Is he right? He's wrong. 537. Wrong. Wrong. Well, open up the last. Wrong. Open up the last pasuk. You're not so far off. You're not so far wrong. You're, you're on the right track. The last pasuk in the book of Menachim Bet, the last verse of the book of Kings 2, tells you what these four books we said Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. You'll see why I'm getting to this periodization. Here's four books. It starts at 1240. Now we understand that's Pashu, that's simple good. When does it end? Well, if you read loudly the last Pesukim of this, you have a king called Yehoiachin. He's in jail. He's in jail. And the king, Evil Mirodach, puts him out of jail. Now the question is, why was he in jail? And why was he taken out of jail? Well, he's in jail because in the year 598, there was a king whose name was Yehoiakim, rebels against the prevailing power in those days, which was Babel, Babylonia. He dies, assassinated, killed in the war, nobody knows. His son Yehoiakim takes over in 598, in his first rebellion, and they lose. So the king, the queen, the artisans, the weapons makers are shifted off to Babel, and Yehoiakim is now put in prison. He's in jail. He stays there for 30 years till the year 560. Right? So for 38 years he's in jail. Now in 560, if you read the last so came over here, Melachim Bet, very quickly, it came to pass in the 37th year from the Galut Yoyachin, the exile of Yoyachin, which is in 598 or 597, of Judah, in the 12th month, 24th day, look how exact this, Evil Merodach was the Babylonian king, lifts him up. Now why do he lift him up? Why take him out of jail? Why do you care about him? Think politically, think militarily. Why does he care now? He's the king of Babel. What's he worried about? 
Sorry? Rebellion. Of whom? No, the Jews are nothing at this point. Who is the rising star to the east? Persia. Persia is now rising. So you, you would rather have a Jewish ally rather than a Jewish enemy. So he now is wonderfully kind to him. He says, you, King Yoyachim, come, please come. He places the throne of Yoyachim above the thrones of every other king in Babel. He gives him, changes clothes, gives him bread every single day. He's on the king's table. Because he wants the Jews as allies rather than the Jews as enemies. So that's the closing line of the book of Melachim Aleph. Now, we're in 560. Right? We span from the year 1240 to 564 the Era. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Good. Now we start on your sheets. We'll come back to the dates in a few moments, but I'm going to shift back and forth. Thank you. Thank you. Now look at book 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. Ladies. Ricky, that enough? We need to look for the Bible. We need to look for the Bible. That one, yes. Okay. I do, I do. Okay, so here now, the first four books of the Bible of the Nishim are called Nishonim. Now, book 5 through 19. 5 through 19 are called Nima Haronim, the latter day prophets. How do they differ than the earlier books of the prophets? The first four are called Nishonim Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. 5 through 19. My number's right. 5 through... What's the other book? I need the books of the Bible. Okay, books of the Bible. Good. No. 5 through 19. What are they all about? Follow me very carefully. The books 5 through 19, known as the Vima Haronim, are an embodiment of the ideas, ideals, and values of the Jewish people. When do these books of the prophets begin? Question, who is the first literary prophet? Who? First literary prophet. I'm lost. Very good. How do you know that, David? I learned it from you. Was there a Get that. Thank you. Correct. Amos is the first literary prophet who prophesied in what year? 750 before the common era. How do I know? He prophesied two years before the famous earthquake that everybody in ancient history spoke about. Famous earthquake which rocked the Middle East. Which, by the way, is going to happen again. We know that Israel's on a geological fault. It's going to happen again. It's going to be disastrous. Let's have it on us. It's going to be a horrifying event. And nobody's prepared for it. Nobody's building because of it. It's a very scary, frightening thought. That's before the common era. We know of a famous earthquake that the ancient historians, Herodotus and others, spoke about, and it's going to happen again. It's on the Jordanian Fourth. Okay, so that happened then. So Amos prophesied two years before the famous earthquake. 
first literary prophet. Now, how do we distinguish between the Nidim, the Shonim, the early prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and the latter prophets, which begins with Amos? Notice how the list of the books of our Bible are out of chronological sequence. They are out of chronological. Amos is what number? Eight. Eight. No. Ten. 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 He said eight. Not me. <laughs> number ten? Ten. Ten. Number ten. We'll deal separately why the list is out of chronological order. But I want you to understand this notion. Sorry? What year was there? 752. 750. 754. Now, let's say you're given an assignment to tell the class something about the Vietnam War what would you do? The bad war. That you, correct what would you do? how would you find information about it? don't abuse the internet that's <laughs> me I don't know about internet you look up Newsweek Time Magazine correct? New York Times you would flip through this oh, good okay you would do all that and you had all kinds of information about the Vietnam War Correct, correct. Oh, that's correct, right. Now, let's say you want to find out what the rabbis said about the Vietnam War. Or more specifically, let's say I want to know about World War II and Nazism. So I have all my resources. I have a book of 50 books on the Holocaust, 100 books on the Holocaust. I need to get all the information. But I want something else. I want to know what the rabbis, the Syrian rabbis, said about the Holocaust when it was going on. Did the Syrian rabbis address the question of the problem of evil, the evil of Amalek, of Nazism, or did they ignore it completely? Were the Syrian rabbis focused on world events, or did it just simply pass over their heads? Uh, how would I find that out? Okay, now we're 20 years later, and we're going to find out that it's too late to ask anybody. Somebody should ask the question. But then nobody asked the question. So what are you going to do? Well, if you were... Sorry? Good. You find their, you find their sermons. Now, if Syrian rabbis don't write their sermons down, you've got a problem. A treasure chest of ideas is lost. So it's a shame. I write my sermons down, but you can't read them, so it's a serious problem. I can't read them either, so. But I'm going to train one of my kids. Take a lot of effort, train one of them. I'll pay them. Right? So now, but in the Ashkenazic world, there are something that's called the Rabbinical Council of America Sermon Manuals where rabbis submit the best sermons, the best that I showed of the year, and they print, they print it. So now I know what Rabbi Luxi, for example, is one of the, the deans of American rabbinical speakers, what he said about the Nazis and the Vietnam War. Right? You need to know how to get that information. Syrian rabbis, there's no Syrian rabbi sermon books. So you wouldn't know what Syrian rabbi said about Vietnam or about World War II, about Nazis. It's a shame, because I'd want to know what they said. You can ask the secondary source, someone who was there. Okay, that's true, but how much would they remember? It's removed from them having written it down, obviously. Okay, good. Now, the New York Times, Time Magazine, Newsweek, and the Internet will give you a social, political accounting of what took place in these years, whether it's World War II or whether it's Vietnam War, correct? Good. The rabbinic sermons gives you the rabbinic approach to these issues. Correct? Good. Same thing over here. Watch my analogy. 
Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings is by and large a political, social history of what took place between the years of, let's say, 1240, roughly, and 560 before the Common Era. What the, the values of the people, what the religious ideology was all about, is contained in these prophetic works. They were the quote-unquote rabbis of that era. And what they said in their speeches is recorded to us in our prophetic books. They were the rabbinic commentary. They were the rabbis who spoke about not political and social history. They weren't concerned about that. In this, this period of time, from 1240 to 560, the first four books is going to give you all that information. The other books give you It's over the same period of time with the first literary prophet Amos in 750 approximately and the last number 19 Malachi in 450 before the common era. They are, those books contain the rabbinic perspective on what's going on internationally. In other words, if I want to know the power of Babel, I might look up one of the books in Malachim or Ashur Assyria. But if I want to know what the rabbis think about these issues, I have to look to the prophetic works, which tells me how the rabbis slash prophets view those international events, and rabbis are very internationally concerned. Rabbis are not narrowly involved, but rather rabbis understood that we have to comment on international events. God. That's pretty good. That can't be it. God said this is what happened. Exactly. He was the internet of those days. Excuse the... Uh, Hashem communicated international information, good point, about the world to the prophets of those days. So Yeshayahu is concerned about international. Yirmiyahu is concerned about international events. I'm also concerned about international events. Example given. Let's look at the first of the literary prophets... Amor, somebody please get the page for me with the brown books. <coughs> you look at the very first chapter of Amos in the brown Humashim. I'm sorry we don't have enough text. Chapter 1, verse 3. Perek Apasu Gemo. 1309 in the brown books. 1309? Is he right? Yeah. Okay, good. Got to check. Everybody have it? Yeah. Ko Amar Adonai. So says God. Here's the answer to Eve's question. Who said God says? He's not talking about Syria. He's concerned about Syria's moral standing. The prophets are concerned about a moral value approach to history. Not concerned about political issues and political relationships. The Nebim are concerned about moral and ideational issues. So what they, they transgressed. They were, very, they were very cruel. What did they do? They threshed the skin with iron combs, people of Gil'ad. Because of this, they're going to pay a price for it. So here, the prophet is obviously concerned about the morality and the ethics. The morality and the ethics of the people of Damascus, of Syria. They're not Jews. They're pagans. But God says, I care about your morality and therefore I'm going to punish you for your violation of universal standards of morality. Look at now verse 6. The Palestinians. 
Here we're talking about Azza, which is a coastal Palestinian city. I'm, I'm concerned about them. What they do? They exiled a full exile to Edom, which is con- currently, I guess you say, Saudi Arabia. It's probably close to that. And I will destroy their fortresses, etc., etc. Look at verse nine. Phoenicia, sword up there in the north. They also were immoral in international dealings. So Amos is concerned with international events from a moral, spiritual perspective. Now the Eden provide us with a moral, spiritual commentary on international events. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and the book of Melachim, Kings, it are basically political, social commentaries. With a bit of religion thrown in to be more precise, more accurate. The Nevi'im from book 5 through 19 are the books of the prophets which is the rabbinic slash prophetic view of those events. The Navi was a heightened spiritual barometer and therefore viewed things through a different framework than the average political commentary. In the same way that Dan Rather is not looking at Saddam Hussein the way I look at Saddam Hussein. Dan Rather is concerned about political standing, is concerned about the social implications. Welcome. Sorry you're late. Let's get to have you here anyway. What am I concerned about? How do I look at, at uh, Saddam Hussein as a member of Amalek? What is my, what's Amalek? Radical evil, evil writ large, inexcusable evil, along the very famous lines of, let's say, Haman, if you want to start with Haman, or Amalek biblical, in the time of the book, the five books, Amalek, the time of Shaul, Amalek at the base of Haman, Amalek as, now you have to analyze, who else is Amalek over here? Is Tor Kenada of the Inquisition Amalek? Interesting question. We have to think about that. Was Paro Amalek in the Exodus? Interesting question. Think about that. Was Hitler Amalek? To think about that. Is Yasser Arafat Amalek? To think about that too. How we have to define Amalek is a very important halachic question. Because if they are Amalek, then I have a certain clear biblical obligation of destroying and killing those people. The acts of evil. Exactly. The acts of evil. That's exactly it. You have certain mandates because they are evil writ large. Absolute radical evil. Now, in 1991, I spoke about this in my shul. And I raised the question whether Saddam Hussein is Amalek. And we analyzed it. We had a give and take. And if, it, if he were, then I said we have to go in and though it's going to cost 2,000 more soldiers which was the estimate at that time, going into Baghdad to get some saying, you have to do it because it's Amalek. And what's the last thing to about Amalek? If you don't kill it, eradicate it, he resurrects. Where's the biblical analog to that? Putting. Amalek? Putting. No. <laughs> Welcome. Yeah, exactly. Putting. How'd that happen? Shaul in the year, Shaul reigned from 1020 to the year 1000. King Saul, the first king of Israel, from 1020 to the year 1000. He reigns, correct? He let Amalek live. The Torah's Midrashic message is that in the year of, let's say, 480, for the story of Purim, Amalek or Haman, Ben Hamidahad Gagi. What was the name of the person that Shaul left alive? Agad. A Midrashic connection, which means that evil resurrects with a vengeance and with a 
passion for the killing of Jews. So now, if that's the case, and that's the biblical teaching about evil, that's that kind, then if you leave Saddam Hussein in 1991, then it's obvious what you have to do? Destroy him in 1991. We didn't. We didn't in 91 because we didn't want 2,000 American soldiers to come home in bags. But now we're paying a price in the year 2003. So the, the Torah has very strong feelings and very clear statements about the nature of evil. So the way I look at Saddam Hussein is going to be very different than the way Dan Rath looks at Saddam Hussein. I see it from a biblical, spiritual, religious, value, morality perspective. He sees it from a purely political, social issue. So again, the books 5 through 19 on your list are about the prophetic slash rabbinic teachings or commentary on the events that took place in the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Mainly the book of Kings. Mainly the book of Kings. Okay? That point hopefully is clear. Now, we spoke about number 10, Amos. He's the first literary prophet to prophesy in the year 750 before the Common Era. Why did he begin to prophesy? Why did he write down his message? Did Eliyahu want to be write down his message? No. Did Elisha write down his message? No. Why does Amos write down his message? Why is he known as the first literary prophet? Answer. For 100 years prior to Amos, Jews engaged in a 100-year war against Aram, Syria. 100-year war. Very difficult. Very demoralizing. Almost impossible to conceive of how difficult that battle was. Series of battles were. 100-year war. Now, what happens in war, inevitably, to any society? It's weakened. It's weakened. Good. How is it weakened? In what ways is it weakened? Economically? Yeah. Morally? Yeah. What happens to the human rights of a person during wartime? Restricted. They what? They're restricted. Restricted, taken away, and worse. Give me a World War II analogy. What happened to the blank in World War II? Japanese were interred in concentration camps. Has to be. What's going to happen to any Muslim person if there's a war with Iraq, or if you're Iraqi, what's going to happen to them? You might have lived here for 150 years. Too bad. What happened during the McCarthy era? The fear of the enemy is so strong, mass hysteria. Sorry? You don't think Iraq is going to be arrested right and left? They, you will, they, they will be. You will see. When, when the World Trade Center was destroyed, that did not happen. It's going to. It's in the streets. They got attacked it's on a social level. The degree that it happened during World War II, they didn't... No, no, that's true. You're right. You're, you're both right. But you'll see what's going to happen if there's a war with Iraq. Very different politically correct Correct. Perhaps. We have to see. No, I'm not saying you're wrong. Correct, could be the case. Sorry? Can't hear you. We didn't perceive them as having infiltrated to such a great degree. Now we're much more afraid of it. Sorry? Right. But it's going to, I think, get worse. But inevitably, what happens in this period of time, when there's a war, human rights get tramped upon. 
So that happens. We understand it. McCarthy or World War II, we understand it. During the Hundred Year War with Syria, from 850 to 750, the human rights of the Jews were trampled upon. Does the government have a right to take away your sneakers if it needs rubber? Yes. yes. Does, the, does the government have the right to drive a tractor through your home because that's to get to the war front? Yes. Yes, eminent domain. So the government has rights above and beyond the individual. The human rights are shattered during times of stress, crisis, war. So too in biblical Israel. So now, in 785, we have a king who is extraordinarily powerful. His name is Yerubam ben Yoash, Yerubam II. Not to be confused, Yerubam ben Nevat, who was 200 years earlier. Now, he was an extraordinary king. He only gets six verses, or seven verses, in the book of Kings 2, chapter 14. Why? Because he was evil. Not him. He wasn't evil. It's good. He came late, so I heard that a little bit evil. He's early. He's early. Right, good. Look what we're looking at. Last half full. Yerobam ben Yoash, Yerobam Shini was an evil king. We as Jews don't give a lot of space to evil kings, no matter how powerful they are. We know more about Yerobam Shini from extra-biblical sources than we do from the entire Tanakh. Very powerful, very evil. Extraordinarily so. You'll see in a second. Now, he wins the Hundred Year War. What should happen? Rights restored. Rights should be restored. Excellent. What did happen? We're not restored. Why not? Because the unpopular king wants to maintain his hold on power, therefore he needs mercenaries, therefore he has to pay them, and therefore he has to have a corrupt judiciary. And the nobility has to maintain its power. So it's also corrupt. So therefore you have what we call a lack of justice, social justice, a lack of judicial justice. People, as our Morse describes us, are living with, sleeping in ivory beds from Syria and people are dying of starvation in the streets. So now Amor sees this. 750 before the common era. He sees a lack of human rights. They were not restored. And therefore Amor writes his message down. Now, fascinating. If I were to ask you the question, what does Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, Yeshayahu, Yirmiyahu, Yehazkel, all have in common? You would tell me that all these prophets have a very clear, what we call in Hebrew, Hattasha. What does Hattasha mean? Induction. Sorry? Induction. Good. A, almost, a Hattasha uh, means they are set aside for the task of being prophets. They have these great images. What's Moses' great image? The burning bush. What's Yechazkel's great image? That great chariot. Isaiah sees the heavens open up and he sees God himself. Each one has a very clearly stated Hakdasha. A, what would you use? Induction to, the prof, to, to becoming a prophet. Visual, graphic, inductive experiences. Amos doesn't have one. You open up Amos, all of a sudden, Amos, these are the words of Amos, and he saw a vision about Israel. Why no Hatasha? The answer is chapter 7. Chapter 7 in Amor says to us, God took me. I was a simple shepherd, minding my own business. I was a keeper of sycamore trees. 
But Yomeh said to me, all of a sudden, imagine this. Let's say you sell clocks for a living. You're in your showroom. All of a sudden, you're tending your clocks, you're winding up a few of them. What happens all of a sudden? God says, I want you to go and prophesy. You must do so. You are so captured by the experience, you have no choice, no will to resist, and you go. He's a simple shepherd, taking care of the sycamore trees and his sheep. And all of a sudden, the divine influence takes over, and he goes to prophesy. Why do you need Hatasha and the word induction to be in Nanavi? Why? Because the evil was so manifest, so clear, so simple, that even a simple shepherd had taken note of the evil between of the evil of that society that we went out and he started screaming and yelling at the Jews of that period of time. Seven fifty four the coming year. And Amos understood this very important biblical principle that Abraham learned years earlier, a thousand years earlier. Abraham learned this notion. Sin inevitably leads to honest or punishment. If the Jewish people en masse transgress, they have to be punished. You cannot escape divine punishment. Head the onshore. Transgression inevitably must lead to punishment. If the Jews sin en masse, then they have to be punished. Where did we say that we learned that idea from the Bible? Abraham? Sodom Amorah. What Abraham learned from that? That Sodom Amorah is an evil country, evil society, therefore it must be destroyed. Abraham protests. Maybe there's some good people. Maybe there's some righteous people. No, God says. It's evil absolute. Look at the notion that we learned from Sodom Amorah. There we're learning that an entire society could become so evil that there is no hope there could be any change in that society. Contemporary analog? Nazism. Is there any hope for Nazism? No. Evil to the core. Therefore it has to be destroyed absolutely and completely. So Amos saw that in Jewish society. He says this is going to lead to destruction. So he writes down his prophets. He's the first literary prophet because he wants... Bless you. Because he wants them to get the message. Did they get the message? No. And therefore they were destroyed in 722. 722 before the common era, 10 northern tribes, absolutely destroyed, never to be resurrected. No hope. By whom? Assyria. Assured. They didn't get the message. Had to be destroyed. Is that principle of Torah teaching still in effect today? Answer? Of course. Which is frightening and very sad. If we see the state of Israel today as pursuing a path of evil, they're not. God forbid. But if they were to pursue that path of evil, if we define Der Hashem as the Kaum Mishpat, and they were to pursue a path that is not to the Kaum Mishpat, justice and righteousness, then they have to be destroyed as well. That seems to be the standard biblical teaching about this particular issue. And if I were a prophet, I have to go there, stand in the middle of Yerushalayim, go to the Kotel Maravi, as those prophets went to the court of Yishayal Yimiyaw, and they went to that bit of, that's what they say. They started screaming, this is going to be destroyed. And what would people say to me? 
They say you're crazy, right? Look at Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, chapter 7. They will say to you exactly the same words. One second, one second, one second, one second. One second. Chapter 7 in Jeremiah, announce the page, please. Chapter 7 in Yirmiyahu. Sorry? You right? Good. Okay, look over here at verse 1. God comes to Jeremiah and says to him, Stand by the gates of the sanctuary, go to the court of the Kalsin, and call up this thing and say to the people, listen to the word of God. All those of you come to bow down to God. What, 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 it was a holiday. All those are coming to be very religious, like Yom Kippur in our contemporary context. But then it was probably Pesach Shabbat to court. Do the coming streaming in. Improve your ways. Prove your days and I'll let you stay in this place. Don't believe in the false prophets who say, Hechal Hashem, Hechal Hashem, Hashem Hema. People then told Yimiel, what are you crazy? God would never destroy his own house of worship, his own temple. Why would God do that? And that is called by Yimiel as what? False prophecies. So people say the same thing to you today. Go to court and say, Jews, wake up. What would they say? God would never destroy us again. Third time we're in our land, we're going to stay in our land, God would never destroy us. Now, hopefully that position is true. We pray to be that position to be true. And if you watch uh, the, Arab, the conference of the Arab countries this weekend that, that I was listening to the right. president of Syria. Right, that's they, correct. They basically, they should get together and make uh, <laughs> Palestine and Jerusalem the... the right. Well, so now, that would not happen, whatever they think, uh, if the Jews don't cooperate by pursuing a path of evil. This is a theological reading of history. Right. That's a political social reading of history. Well, or military. military. Right. So from this point of view, that could never happen. Because we have if we do pursue just and right, what will happen? Six day war. If, if we pursue the right pathway. A theological reading of Jewish history would be that if we pursue Mishpat of just and righteous, then that would not happen. But if we don't, that might be the rod of God's anger. But they were focusing Sharon's yeah, yeah. Sharon is the evil one. Right. The, yeah, absolutely. Destroy the evil that's one. what they would say. You know, Correct. They learn from us, not yeah. so. Right, that's what they would say. Remember that Nebuchadnezzar Bavil is called the rod of God's anger. So too, the Arab countries would be viewed by an Avi as the rod of God's anger if we don't pursue justice and righteousness. So this principle, I'm most understood, I'm most told the people, wrote down his prophecies, because otherwise they're not going to get the message, and otherwise they're going to be destroyed. But with all of his efforts, at the end of the day, what happened? They were destroyed. 722. Now, look at your books of the Bible again. We've seen about Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. We said something about Amos, number 10. All of these other prophets were dealing with various ideas, ideals, and values as applied to society of that time. Example, your ale, number nine. What great idea does your ale tell me about? Nobody studies your ale nowadays, except in my class. Why does nobody study your ale? He's very short. Who cares what he says? Seems to be in the script. But what does your ale teach me? Incredibly important idea. What happens at the time of your ale? A massive plague of locusts. Now, if something really bizarre happened to you, I'll give you a real life example. Man comes to me, says to me, I'm really upset. I said, What happened? I've lost 
six times in a row in Atlantic City. Why is God doing this to me? That's true. Do you want to know the name of the guy? Chatelon. Do you want to know more? No. Okay. Good enough. Good. It wasn't you, don't worry. I was flabbergasted. What am I going to tell him this person? Rather get all kinds of strange questions. What am I going to tell him? He lost six times in a row in, in Atlantic City. And, sorry? I never got to tell him that. You should have been rabbis. I, I couldn't say that. His passion is Atlantic City, and I guess he always wins. But what is he really saying to me? You're ill. What does that mean? Well, something happens to you in business, let's say. You're building a great, wonderful business. And it's building, it's building, it's building, and all of a sudden, something bizarre happens. Whatever maybe, something bizarre happens. You might go to your rabbi to say, what am I doing, right or wrong? Now, as modern human beings and people, we don't usually see things theologically. But in that period of time, people went to the prophet to ask him, or the rabbi, quote-unquote, to ask him, what is this really all about? There was a massive plague of locusts in your El's time period. People went to the Navi or rabbi say, and said to God, is this an incident or is it an event? Incident or event? Because it was so massive. Something striking happens to you, you want to know, is this a mess from God or not? So of course your El says, this is an event, not an incident. What's the difference in these two terms? An incident is something that happens, just happenstance, happens. Stock market goes down, stock market, right? But if it really goes down, I'm calling my rabbi. Not my broker, my rabbi. Much smarter. But an event is something which is divinely directed. Something of great significance. So your El teaches us that principle. And so on. Each one of these Nevi'im teach us some principle, some idea, ideal, or value. As mentioned, Amos tells us about justice and righteousness. Ovadia, my favorite book. Why? Thank you. Very good. You guys are good. Let me tell you. No, now I know. They still know my jokes too. That's really good. Ovadia, great guy. One chapter only. Only one chapter. What's his major concern? Ovadia's major concern is brothers hating each other. Sound familiar? Anybody's community? Look about things. How could a brother hate a brother? In his particular time period, Edom, which is Esav, hated and did war against Yaakov, against the Jewish people. From the prophetic perspective, from a theological vantage point, what Ovadiah says is that I condemn the people of Edom for doing battle against their brother Jacob. And they shall be destroyed. When you violate blood lines, then you've done something so horrifying, so evil, because he's your brother. Because of that, you must be destroyed. Akin to, let's say we have a family. Wonderful family. And let's say the parent decides to divide the inheritance in a way that is perceived by the children as inequitable. Ever happened? It's the most gut-wrenching thing that I deal with. Somebody comes to you and says, Mom gave the bracelet to Sonia instead of to me, and I gave it to Mom, and I'd like that bracelet back, 
And Sonia says, Mom loved me more than you, therefore gave me... I'm not making this up. This happens. And I can't believe family bonds breaking apart over a $200 bracelet. And yet it's there. It happens. We as rabbis should be smart enough to educate people how to do inheritances. To not have family feuds. We don't. I think about it in Marshall. But all rabbis should do that. Because it really breaks apart families over the perceived inequitable allotting of the family fortune, whatever it may be. And I understand how difficult it is how to allocate it fairly. If you have one child who's a multimillionaire and one child who's in the poorhouse. So if you do 90-10, that makes sense. But it may not be perceived by the rich one as fair, perhaps, on one hand. On the other hand, what if the rich one becomes poor and the poor one becomes rich? What happens? That wheel of fortune does turn. Then what happens? So, <clears throat> that is gut-wrenching when that happens. When family bonds are broken apart. So here Obadiah is talking about Edom, who did war, who made war against the Jewish people, and therefore they shall be destroyed. Navi number 12, Yonah. What's great about the Navi Yonah? He's the only prophet who only speaks to Gentiles. Does he succeed? Yes. Extraordinarily so. Every Jewish prophet fails to talk to the Jews. We are stiff-necked people. And Yonah succeeds extraordinarily so in speaking to the Gentiles. And of course we know Yonah because we read it every single Yom Kippur. He's that important. He's that important. Yonah to the Gentiles. What's his primary message? Teshuvah. How so? The sailors do Teshuvah, people of Nineveh do Teshuvah. What were they guilty of? What were the people of Nineveh guilty of? Oh, you should know this, you read it every single year. You're not reading well enough. Yes? You and me. Oh, and Yom Kippur. Oh, you're right, yeah. No, I get excited about your God, Yom Kippur. I'll do two. This year, we're doing two in my shoe. Don't tell my stepson. That will happen in the same Brooklyn this year. That could happen, right? So, you're Brooklyn this year. Small No, 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 no. But yeah, Shiwut Hamas Asher Bidehem. The sin of Hamas. If you recall, Hamas is the very same sin for which the world was destroyed in Donah Mabul. Hamas. Right? So they were able to reform themselves, basically this became reform themselves from Hamas. They changed. Not for long, it's true. And one can raise the question why you didn't want to go from the very beginning. Why you refused his... What's that word again? Induction. Induction to be a Navi. Why? Why he refused that induction to be a Navi. He runs away, cannot escape, and he must deliver the message. What's his message? Five words. Right, that's his message. That's his message. And he succeeds. So Yonah is a short from that point of view. Each one of these books of the prophets has ideas, ideals, and values as applied to society of their time, trying to teach the Jews about the, these ideas, ideals, and values. Yechezkel. What's your skill all about? First of all, when did he prophesy? David? Nope. <laughs> when did he prophesy? Your skill. 
594 before the Common Era. He was one of those very celebrated personalities who were exiled in 598 in Galut, we spoke about before. What's his great message? He's the only prophet that does what? You should look when you study biblical text, look for that which is unique to that biblical text, right? You want to compare, you want to do a trans-biblical search, you want to know what's unique to that particular Navi. What's unique about Yehazkel? He's the only prophet that does, <coughs> that prophesies outside of Eretz Yisrael. Where is he? He was exiled to Babel. So what's he telling me? What's he teaching me? How a Jewish community should conduct itself in order to survive exile. What do you do if you're in the United States of America, not in Israel? How do you survive assimilation? What should you do? Yehoshkel has a long, elaborate message to the people of his time about how to survive in exile. Now, look at Numbers 14, 15, and 16. These three Nivi'im, Nahum Habakkuk Sefanyah, I remember they're out of chronological sequence. First comes Sefanyah. Sefanyah prophesies against the horrible, evil empire, Assyria. Assyria was the Nazis of that time. When I was studying this, my professor had said, we never understood how evil, the, how evil Assyria could be until we understood the Nazis. Ashuribanipal, one of the last kings of Assyria, said, quote, I have painted the mountains red with, my, with the blood of my enemies. Absolute evil, destruction. 722, destroy the ten northern tribes. Now, in 615, before the common era, Sifanya describes the evil of Ashur. And of course, what does he say about the evil of Ashur? What's the therefore? Because Ashur is evil, therefore, it has to be destroyed. That's the world principle with which God runs the world. Evil has to be destroyed. And therefore, Syria will have to be destroyed. Ashur, Sifanya, Niba, Ahorban, Ashur. He prophesied that Assyria shall be destroyed. 6.15. And what happened in 6.12? They are destroyed. Ninveh is destroyed by, in 6.12 by which empire? The Babylonian Empire. Right? Now, Nahum, prophet number... Sorry? 14. He's the reporter, in quotes, who describes in his three or four chapters the destruction of Nineveh. He's there, he describes, he writes all about it. Habakkuk, number 15, how does he react to the destruction of Nineveh? How does he react? Oh, we've got to end. One more minute. How does he react? He complains bitterly about it. He's intensely angry about this destruction of Assyria and he complains so bitterly with such hostility towards God. He says in Pedic Beth, I will stand by my watch. I will stand over here. What God shall reply to my rebuke of God? That verse is one of the known Tikkunet Sofrim the rabbis had to change a letter. It should, should say Ma'yashiv Atokakti It says in your text Ma'ashiv which is grammatically nonsensical. Look it up. Habakkuk Perek Al Perek Be'et Yisrael What does it say? Thank you. Ashiv. Say it again. Ashiv with an Aleph. And is that biblically correct? 
Now, what should it be? Flap scrabble, no? Yashi. Yashi, thank you. Okay, good. My Yashi. Exactly. Why my Yashi? Because what he, third person. Why does it say my? Actually, what I want to answer. The rabbis changed the text because it was so insulting to God. Now, why was Habakkuk so upset, complaining so bitterly about the Assyrian destruction? Should be happy about it. Ashut, you should. Why so upset? No. Who's doing business with them, like the French and the Iraqis? <laughs> 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 He's right, up on these Iraqis. No, why is Habakkuk so upset about it? Why is he so angry about it? Because he saw them as God, God's messengers. Who? Ashur? No. It's a great question to leave you until next week. <laughs> oh, two weeks. No, I have to come next week because Megillah Destair is the third week. So we're going to not have in two weeks, which is Tani Destair, two weeks hence. Ricky will send up emails. I want you to have people all over the country telling me I got an email about your class tonight. <laughs> all over was open. I got, I got a, he's very efficient. He's really great. All over the place. I don't even have an email number. I don't, even, I said, don't blame me. I don't even know what email is. I do now, but don't tell anybody. I don't want to know about it. That's true. I just learned. That's for sure true. It's true. Emily has it, not me. I don't get involved in that. So, um, next week we'll have a class, but not in two weeks because it's Tani Destir. Clear? Good. Why is Habakkuk so upset? I will analogize. I want you to extrapolate from my analogy the reason. Let's say you're a rabbi in 1942 and you're experiencing Nazism. You have one message. What's that one message? The one message that Nazism will be destroyed. Hitler said, I have a thousand year reich, a thousand year reign. You as a rabbi are obligated to preach that you are transgressing, you are sinful, you are evil, therefore you will be destroyed. So you preach this in 1942, in 1943, 1944, and finally 1945, you are vindicated. You walk out of Yeshua that day and you smile broadly. You are so happy and so exultant that these day happened and we have won the war against the Nazis develops after that. Now, how could it already happen? Communism. Communism. What's his name? Joseph Stalin. And then we find out more that Stalin is more evil than Hitler was. Stalin's responsible for the death of 16 million people. Hitler, 20 million people. Rough estimates. 20 million versus 16 million. Now, if that's the case, you're crushed. Why are you crushed? You turn to God and you say, God, I don't understand you. I predicted and preached that evil must be punished. So you got rid of one evil, what did you do? Epshah! What does Epshah mean? It's worse! You put stamps out of Hitler? I don't understand you, God! Exactly if you read the first chapter of Habakkuk, he is complained by the very same thing. Hashem, you are right, you destroyed Ashur. They're evil. What you put in its place? Babel. Babel! which is worse! Babel is going to destroy the 586, the whole temple, the Jews, much worse! I don't understand your system of justice, God, as Habakkuk complains about in the very first chapter. Very striking prophet. His answer, the answer that Hashem gives him, is wonderful. It's an extraordinary answer. And he tells him, it's such a great answer, write it, to Tov Zot, write this down, Leman Yerutz Now what does that mean? Write it, Leman Yarut Korev. What does that mean? Write it so big that somebody who's running can read it. Billboard size. And what's his answer over there? He tells him, Habakkuk, you only know half the story. You only know you're in the middle of the chapter. 
there's still a vision for that time period called Mashiach and the end he says Sadiq the righteous lives by his faith Habakkuk has to trust me God says there's only a small by building only a small chapter in a very long history you're seeing this one little chapter by Bill right now you're seeing Stalin right now it looks evil to you but it's only one chapter in a very long history as to what's going to take place what we've covered today is the, essentially the 19 prophetic books I will start next time covering the last three 17, 18 and 19 I'd like to do today but we can't and then we'll do, go over the writings the Ketuvim and then go back to the very famous five books of Moses to see how much you really know about these five books. And then we will also go over the dates, because you can only understand the ideas involved in these books of the Bible if you understand the historical context which is on your first two sheets. Thank you. You have a two-minute, three-minute intermission, and then we have to start the next class. Sorry? Uh, yeah, I will. If I get to him, I'll try. But it's just, uh, just hard to get to him.